Trigger warning, this podcast contains a deep discussion about grief, loss and the impact that losing a loved one to suicide can have, which some listeners may find distressing or upsetting. So please listen with caution. and thanks for joining me for another episode of the Just Checking In podcast. This podcast is brought to you by Vent, a place where everyone, but especially men and boys, can open up by the mental health issues, break down stigmas and start conversations. I'm your host with the most, as always, Freddie Cocker. Each pod, I check in with a special guest. We have a natter about all things mental health, as well as anything and everything else they are passionate about. If it helps that person with their mental health, we'll discuss it. I am so hyped to check in with this next guest as not only is he one of the UK's most outstanding independent journalists but has been on an incredible journey himself and has experienced things most people will never be exposed to. His name is Jake Hanrahan. He is an investigative journalist, podcast producer and documentary filmmaker. He has worked for the likes of Vice News, BBC News, HBO, Esquire, ProPublica, The Guardian, Wired and so much more. He has covered and reported on conflicts in Syria, Iraq, Ukraine, Southeast Turkey, Palestine, Peru, Hong Kong, Kosovo and Northern Ireland. He has made films covering the hidden neo-Nazis in the United States military, the conflict between the PKK and Turkish government and his most recent film exposes the rapid rise of illegal 3D printed guns in Europe. In this pod we discuss his journalism journey, his arrest and detainment by the Turkish government in 2015 whilst working for Vice News, mental health amongst journalists reporting on war and classism in the industry. We also discuss his lived experience of his undiagnosed ADHD, the impact that his father's alcohol addiction had on him growing up and losing one of his close friends to suicide in 2020. Strap yourselves in because I know you'll come away from this pod with your eyes and minds very much opened. This is how our check-in went. Jake, welcome to the Just Checking In pod, mate. Thanks so much for coming on and taking time out of your ridiculously busy schedule to talk to me. First off, how are you, bro? And what has the reaction been like to your latest film? The memes are already flowing from it, which can only be a good thing. <laughs> yeah, man, I'm good. Thank you, mate. Thanks for having me on. Yeah, the reaction has been amazing, man. It's basically everything I wanted from like my work has come from this kind of doc. You know, like people are worried, people are angry, people are excited, people are happy. You know what I mean? Everything you can think of, it's created a real debate. So I'm definitely glad about that, yeah. We might as well talk about it now before we go into your journalism journey. So do you want to just talk a little bit about the latest film to the listeners who won't know what it is and the eye-opening topics that it discusses, basically? Yeah, yeah, sure. So the documentary is called Plastic Defence, and it's about 3D-printed illegal firearms in Western Europe. Now, in America, 3D-printed guns are legal, it's whatever, it's kind of a hobby, in Europe, obviously, it's a lot more dangerous for people doing it. And it's a much bigger deal because obviously firearms are almost completely illegal here. So I found a guy that is basically, he's founded this kind of network of people that 3D print fireable guns. And he's trying to spread it all over the world. And he's trying to bring it to Western Europe. And we went there, we went to meet him. We saw him making the uh, parts of the weapon in his workshop. Then he took us into the forest and test fired it. Now, a lot of people think, oh, you know, if they've heard of 3D printed guns, there's this kind of misinformation that, oh, they they blow up in your hand or whatever, like maybe four years ago. 
but not now. These are like, they're essentially submachine guns. You know what I mean? They fire 9mm rounds and they fire semi-auto. They can kill you very easily. And we got to see it in action, man. I'm like, first journalist to do it. It's on my independent platform, Popular Front, and it's done like 500,000 views in a week. So it's doing well. Amazing, man. Your journey is just fascinating and there's absolutely tons to get through. So shall we just crack on? Let's start the pod by talking about your journalism journey, Jake. So why don't you tell the listeners first about why you became inspired to be a journalist, where your love for filming and investigating, I guess, began, and then how you got into the industry. So I should probably say this first. I don't have any qualifications on paper. You know, I didn't do very well at school. I got like, I don't know, two GCSEs and I didn't go to college or university or any of that. But by the time I was about 21, I kind of realized like I'd been doing everything, laboring, call center, worked in a gym for a few years. That was cool. But I just realized like, you know, I need a kind of career for myself. And, you know, the only thing I'd ever been any good at in school was English. I was always reading as well, even when I was messing around and failing school and just getting into nonsense as a teenager. I always read a lot. I remember my granddad, he's like an immigrant from Ireland. And he said when he first came to England, he said like the only, he didn't know anything, you know, he had no school or anything. But the only thing he did was read, read, read. And he's like one of the smartest guys I know. So I just figured like, wow, if I keep reading, you know, maybe I'll be that smart one day. You know what I mean? I'm definitely not that smart, but certainly I learned a lot from books. So I realized I wanted to, you know, my the books I like to read were more like journalism, kind of investigations, that sort of thing, real life stuff. I thought, man, there's so many things that I'm interested in that I feel like I could maybe, I could do that. And I'm not really from a kind of traditional academic background or anything like that. Don't have any journalists in the family, nothing like that. So it was a bit hard for me to be like, well, how do I, can I do this? Am I in this world? Can I fit in this world? And, you know, I just kept learning and learning. And eventually I taught myself and then I just started pitching and pitching and pitching, like saying to other, you know, news organizations, hey, I've got this idea. I want to write it. I want to write it. Eventually, I, you know, I got some successes and I started to kind of make a little name for myself. And by the time I was 24, Vice News had started when it was good, you know, the original Vice News. You know, I'd been writing a few bits for Vice and certainly like the, the articles I'd been writing fit into Vice News, you know what I mean? Like that kind of thing. So when that started up, I just contacted them and was like, I need to work here, man. Like, I need to work here. You know what I mean? So boss was just like, right, whatever. Like, just come and give us some ideas. I remember I went there and like, he'd forgotten that he was meant to talk to me that day. And he was like, oh, I'm going out. And like, I live in the Midlands. So I just got like an hour train. So I was very broke. Like, I didn't have no money. So like the, the train was a big deal for me. So he was kind of saying like, oh, I'll be back in three hours. Just come another day. And I was like, nah, no way. Fuck that. So I'm staying here. So I just waited. And when he come back in, he was like, why are you still here? And I was like, I told you, like, I've got ideas for you. You know what I mean? And he, I think he appreciated that. It turned out he was like some like normal guy from Blackpool. And eventually, you know, I had a good meeting with him. And I went back to my job in the Midlands on the labouring and the building site. And then I had a job in a suit shop and just all different things I was doing for about a month. And then, you know, he called me one day and was like, hey, are you going to come and work for us or what? And I was like, absolutely. <laughs> I just fucked off at my job. And that was that, man. Started working at Vice. And, you know, I kind of started as like a freelance researcher or whatever. And within like a week, he was like, I think you should do documentaries. And I was like, yeah, I want to one day. And he's like, no, no, just do it. He's like, come to me with an idea. And honestly, mate, I must have started Vice News in about February 2014 and by like, October, I was like covering war and conflict. It was crazy, you know, like in front of camera, 
you know, I made like four or five documentaries in my first year that was just like an unbelievable situation. And then people started to like me for my documentaries and I got more opportunities. And then, yeah, man, it, it kind of went from there. And then Vice News changed hands, I guess, you know, after about four years, like best times of my life, man. It changed hands though. HBO kind of bought it out and it got very corporate. And for me, it wasn't really my thing anymore. So I left, did a bit of freelancing here and there. And then, yeah, started popular from my own network, man. And that's doing really well. I've been doing that for the last three years. Before we talk about some of the the best films you made or some of the ones that mean the most to you, mate. You're very proud of your working class roots. And given how privileged journalism is as an industry, have you ever experienced any classism in the industry? Your accent isn't particularly strong, but unfortunately I can assume you've gotten grief over it by ignorant people. If you felt comfortable, just tell me about your experiences here, how they perhaps impacted your mental health. You know, Is it a widespread problem? And did you ever feel pressure to posh up your voice in inverted commas around certain people or for audio or presenting work? Yeah, no, it's a, it's a good question. I mean, like, firstly, I don't know if I'm proud of like working class background. It's just, it is what it is. And I, there's also like an element of, I don't know, I feel like I grew up in that environment. I grew up in what, you know, on some level would be considered underclass now, you know, like council estate to a degree, dad didn't have a job. So there's all these elements to it. And I've seen all that. And I just think the perception that, people have of that is either over romanticized or over demonized you know in the media I feel like I just love my kind of peoples in a way like there's just feels like even though I you know now I you know I earn decent money you know I'm not broke like I used to be but it's just always a connection to that you know for me and I've always considered that very look anyone that's poor is I just have an immediate kind of I don't know understanding and feeling towards them that like you know you have to look out for them and yeah, my accent's not that strong, man. Like, we don't really have that strong of an accent, Randy. You know, I'm from the North Ants. I mean, if you go to Northampton, there's a lot of people that try to put on a fake London accent, which is bizarre to me, but a lot of people do it. It's annoying, but it is what it is. But like, yeah, man, I mean, it is clear that I'm not... I mean, Londoners think come from up north, and then people from up north think come from London. It's one of them weird kind of Midlands accents. But yeah, definitely. I mean, when I first started, you'll see my first documentaries, and I'm very much normal, very much me... And then when I, I started making docs, man, like other reporters started mocking me, man. Firstly, they were like, just you, like whatever working class person that's in the media they could think of, they would just call you that, you know, like, oh, you're Danny Dyer or whatever. It's like, really? I sound, look and act nothing like that guy. It's just that pathetic, really disgusting classism. And it's like, ah, it's just a joke. And it's like, nah, mate, is it a joke? Would you say it outside the office? You know what I mean? Like these kind of guys that are very privileged and they just think they can do these things and just try and destroy people and you know it took me a long time to learn but certainly halfway through or not even halfway through like after I started doing my docs I started trying to speak more clear I'm almost ashamed of doing it if you look back at some of my documentaries like my first ones normal and then eventually you just see where I started becoming very aware of my voice and I'm trying to talk more clear and it's kind of ridiculous because you can tell that that's not how I talk it's obvious that I'm trying to be I don't know about poshing it up but certainly trying to like phase out my act you know like we say around here we say like car park you know what I mean not car park or whatever you know what I mean so there's certain things that are different and uh, like you can tell I'm very much trying to like phase that out which and then it got to a point where I just grew as a person and grew as like within my job and became more confident of myself where I realized like no actually me being slightly different from this posh guy is actually more interesting for people and certainly on the ground I was never trying to posh up my accent I was just me on the ground you know so if I'm meeting some militant somewhere in the Middle East he recognizes even though you're from completely different backgrounds 
poor kids recognize poor kids you know what I mean there's a certain like there's a certain nature about you you know what I mean and like don't get me wrong I'm not like ghetto or anything like that you know but like there's a certain thing you pick up after living in council estate housing you learn that kind of environment there's something different you just pick up and certainly as a kid I must have picked it up and you just recognize each other it's funny so when I realized that I got to a level where I was like you know what fuck this why am I trying to be someone else and as soon as I started being myself everything went better everyone like noticed me more appreciate my work more and they were like hey man you got like um I don't know I I don't want to say I'm like I don't think I'm great or anything but I just think what you're getting from what I do is just a little bit different to what you'll get on like we're here reporting on the front line like you know like that kind of BBC dry you know like it's a bit different to what I do you know so and you know and certainly my mate were like killing me back home in the Midlands for a while you know every time I walk into the boxing gym they're like Jay Canrahan reporting for Vice News. Like, I can't escape it. They're just bullying me, man. And it's like, no, that's what you need, actually. You need your real friends to be on you. You have to be yourself. When I did be myself, things got better. There's one more thing I want to mention, though. There's one thing that I really learned. My best friend, Phil, who I met through Vice, like Vice News, he's a normal guy from a very normal background, working class lad from up north, from Wigan, right? So, like, obviously, immediately, me and him were paired together. But the stereotype worked because we worked great together, you know, like we had a great time. We made great films. But I remember one time like we were talking about like, how does this guy that's doing the same amount of work as us, how is he getting paid like £30,000 more? Which honestly was like that at times. I was getting paid peanuts at Vice News. I was going to war zones and getting paid what like a JD supervisor gets paid in the uk uh, you know i'm like jd sports is what i'm talking about yeah we're getting paid pittance mate and i loved it i didn't care <laughs> i loved it you know and it's the best money i'd ever been on ironically enough like because i've just been having shit jobs so we were like how is it they get paid so much more and honestly they had nothing more than us but we worked out they're from a background where you learn to speak about money you learn to negotiate you learn to debate sort of things we, you know i'm not from that we don't really you know i'm from a very Certainly, there's like very like middle class elements to certain people in my family. I mean, I remember first becoming aware of class as a kid and going to see some of my aunts that were like clearly like very like middle class waitrose types. And I remember just thinking like, wow, we're family, but we're different already. You know, like that's when I first became aware of class. But what I'm saying is you don't learn. I don't remember learning any way of like debating or learning to talk about money. You just kind of get what you're given what's for dinner you get what you're given you know what I mean as as someone that's like from a more working class background you become like oh thank you so much for just giving me this whereas the other lads no like this isn't anything against them but they're from an, an environment of I've worked hard I deserve this which you do you do deserve your money from one working hard but for me I, I didn't really clock it back then and then you know and these guys they just expect more so they get more, <laughs> you know, it's like, it's very weird. It's I'm explaining it badly, but it's bred into them to expect a certain amount of something. Whereas the boss can see a mile away that you're going to accept whatever they give you. I remember one time I asked for a pay rise at Vice and they said, the only thing we can give you is, is like an extra thousand pound a year. And I was like, yep, <laughs> you know what I mean? And it was just like, it's ridiculous really. But you know, you have an aura of like, thanks so much. Because they knew if I was out there, phew, but that's me. What am I going to do if these other guys, they can just leave and their parents will just look after them. So it's like, if they say like, no, I'm not working for that much, then they'll lose them. Like Vice knew that I weren't going nowhere. Where else would I go? Back to the building site? No way. Like you said, your background meant you were able to connect with these sometimes quite dangerous people because there was that almost like innate connection that you had. And you were able to develop this fearlessness that, let's be honest, 
not a lot of people can do. This is real life shit you've had to do. You've been on front lines. You've been in conflict. You've been around some pretty sadistic and brutal people. When you come home and when you stop being Jake Hammerhan, the filmmaker, are you able to take that mask off and properly self-care, mate? I mean, to be honest, I mean, if you ask anyone that knows me, man, I'm very much, if you see me down the pub, I'm pretty much the same as in my docs, honestly. Obviously not on the same level. When I'm working, I'm more professional, but I'm not like a different person completely. It's not, you know, I know some reporters, they turn on and off a different personality, which is like, I think you're a psycho, (laughs) you know, like, whereas me, I realized that just being myself in front of camera to a degree, obviously you're filtered because you're on camera and people don't want to see you just being an idiot. But like to a degree, like people actually appreciate that and they like to watch that as well. So I was just like, oh, I'll just be myself, man. So there isn't much like difference, but self-care, I mean, it's become such a buzzword now. Like most people I know that going about self-care, it just mean like, I want to be lazy. So I have a problem with laziness. Like I don't want to be lazy at all. So like I don't really... I struggle to take time off, man, because obviously I've got my own platform now, my own business, and there's people relying on me. And I just feel like, well, if I take some time off, that's like money down the drain and reporting that I could be doing that. You know, like I'll go and play like PlayStation for two hours. I can't do it, man. I'm just like, nah, man, I need to go and work. I've got work to do. You know what I'm saying? So it is very hard. And, you know, I'm on my own a hell of a lot. Like I spend a lot of time just on my own in my house doing my work when I'm not out reporting or whatever. I've got my dog and that and a few people around me and my family. But like, I quite like being on my own. (laughs) So I guess what I'm saying is self-care, if you want to call it for me, is kind of just being on my own, getting my shit done. Like that gives me, I like doing it, you know. Let's talk about your body of work in a bit more detail now because you put out so many great films and articles, which could be a whole pod in itself. So I'd recommend all the listeners to have a deep dive if you want to get the full picture. Can you talk to me about the first film you did? Because I remember it was about the Swedish left and militancy. I remember watching a very fresh face, Jake Camrahan, in that film. Can you just talk to me about that experience? Because there was a moment, I think, where you were going through a tunnel to meet them and you said, oh, this could be a great place for journalist being murdered or something along those lines it was just like really kidnapped. conditional yeah, yeah kidnapped that was it yeah do you want to just tell the listeners about that yeah man I mean really fresh face man I was like a baby I mean I was only like 24 I look about fucking 18 or something but it was it's really sad actually when I look back at that doc I'm like I look at it I'm like I was such much more of an innocent person back then you know what I mean like not like oh I'm damaged or anything not to say that but it, I definitely was Seen a little bit more of life, I think, since then. And yeah, man, that was the first doc I did for Vice. It was about militant leftists in Sweden where they would find out where a neo-Nazi lives and they would go to his house and put an axe through his door, kick out his door, go in his house, beat him up, smash up his house. They were like Antifa, but like hardcore. This is what Antifa used to be about, actually, in the 90s and stuff. It was really heavy in France and it was actually like life or death situations. Now it's become a little bit more of a powwow for people or something they say online. But for me, it was like, oh, these Swedish lads are really going at it. That's very interesting. You know, they're stepping over the line. Anyone that steps over the line into like unreasonable behavior or what is seen as unreasonable behavior by whatever the public, I find very interesting. And yeah, so I went there and yeah, we met these kind of like militants. They're called Rev Front, like Revolutionary Front. And they were just kind of, yeah, like socialist, anti-fascist that beat up neo-Nazis, you know, and a lot of them were like really about it. They were actually tough guys. 
And yeah, it was like my first experience ever making a doc, man. And I remember just every moment of it just being like, I cannot believe I'm doing this. Like, it's just incredible. You know, like, I can't believe I've been given this opportunity. You got to remember like, six months before that, I was laboring on a building site and there's nothing wrong with laboring, but that is the most unqualified job on the building site, right? You're just picking up bricks. You don't need anything for it. And it's very hard to really get above that. So it was very weird for me to just suddenly be in that environment. To this day, like every so often, I never forget. I just sit there sometimes and just think, have I got all this? You know, I haven't got a lot, but I've got enough. Well, I don't mean stuff. I mean, this kind of body of work, which just really, I feel so blessed, really, you know. So it's a lot of hard work. Don't get me wrong. I worked very hard for it. But I was very lucky to get in with certain people at the right times, you know, and very thankful to uh, Kevin Sutcliffe, who was my boss at Vice News. You know, he like kind of gave me everything, really. Another film which I think probably put you in the most imminent risk of life was the one which you made called PKK Youth Fight for Autonomy in Turkey. So you met the leaders of PKK militias in Kurdish controlled parts of Turkey. A lot of these soldiers were kids or at most young adults armed with shotguns, AK-47s, fighting guerrilla warfare on the streets. If you felt comfortable, and obviously you can put as little as detail as you want in this bit, just tell me about the film and then the repercussions which affected you and your Vice News colleagues. So the Kurdish youth had been getting brutally oppressed for 40, well, longer than that. Like, I mean, they've been fighting for 40 years, but the Kurdish community in Turkey has been famously oppressed. Ataturk, the, you know, the modern founder of modern day Turkey, said they're not, he, you know, he wouldn't even recognize they were Kurds. He said they're just mountain Turks, you know, and he wouldn't even recognize that they've got their own culture and language and everything. So, you know, the Kurds have been oppressed for a long time. And certainly oppression is something I'm always interested in, particularly when people start fighting back. You know, I think that's a very interesting concept of like separatist groups or guerrilla warfare, like irregular warfare has always been a focus of mine within reporting on conflict. So to cut a long story short, I got in with this Kurdish youth militia that were rising up as the ceasefire was falling apart in Turkey between the Turkish state and the Kurdish militants, the PKK, a big, big militant group that have been going since uh, 1978. And for me, it was like, it was one of the biggest stories because not a lot of people have been reporting it. In fact, like no one really was reporting it. You know, I was down there and it was like, wow, you got Kurdish militants rising up to fight like what is essentially NATO's second largest army. They're being slaughtered. Kids are being murdered. And I mean, I don't mean the militants. I mean, like unarmed children were killed. It was on camera. Nehat Kazanan, 12 years old, shot in the head, killed. Umit Kurt, I think he was 14, killed, you know. So it wasn't just like these kids were kicking off for no reason. You know what I'm saying? They, for whatever you want to, whatever biases people have, in my opinion, it's undeniable that they had a reason to fight back in a violent way. Certainly there was no, you know, it, it gets to a point where there is no negotiation left. So anyway, so they started fighting. And firstly, I met them in Istanbul in 2014. There was a group of them there, a group called the YDGH, which is like the, you know, the youth movements kind of acronym. They were fighting the Turkish government there a little bit, but like small scale rioting, Molotov cocktail, you know, like petrol bombs, no like hardcore, hardcore machine gun stuff. You know, they're firing at them with pistols, but it, you know, is a little bit, you know, a little bit here. So then after I made that, some people got in contact with me and were like, look, you should go to the deep, deep Southeast Turkey on the border with Syria. Like that's where the youth have literally taken over the towns. And they weren't joking, you know, like I went down there January 2015 and they were like on patrol through the streets with like AKs and they were doing like checkpoints and they were digging out trenches in the ground to stop the Turkish police. And basically they were trying to take over. So I made that first doc, right? And I was like, there's going to be a war. There's going to be a war. And everyone's like, no, 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 it's not going to flare up. But the summer there was a war, like full on 
outright war. It wasn't just like a few clashes. It was a full-on war. And the Kurdish militia, they'd taken over the whole area. Honestly, like police would just couldn't get in. So I went back, right? I was like, right, I have to go back. And we went back and it was very heavy, man. Before it was like, yeah, we're on these checkpoints and there's a few clashes, but this was like heavy. Like you're talking tanks have pulled up to the town you know what i'm saying and and there's all the youth before there was maybe 50 militia members now every single young man and woman in that town is now with a bally on and has a weapon i mean there was hundreds of them now because they'd seen all their friends get killed and they're just like right it's it's a you know like bloody sunday right northern ireland it's like a, it's a radicalizing effect right so they'd seen a lot of their friends get murdered and they just went right we're gonna fight now so they basically took over the whole town. We were in a place called Jizra. And, you know, we were welcomed there. They'd seen the other two documentaries I'd done. They liked it. We were very open with them about what we thought. And they were open with us. And they appreciated that we understood that we weren't taking the Turkish state's propaganda. You know, the Turkish state would just say, they're all terrorists. Every single one of them is a terrorist. And we were saying, well, you know, there's a little bit more behind it than that. They didn't just spring out of nowhere. You know, they didn't fight for no reason. So they appreciated that. So we were kind of welcomed and I mean, we're on like the very front line with them. And when I say front line, I'm talking about the city. Imagine Oxford Street or something or like maybe not Oxford Street, but imagine some like estate in Hackney is a front line. You know, like it was in the city. It was where they live. Their houses were their front line bases. You know, it's crazy. So yeah, we filmed all that. It was amazing access and blah, blah, blah. Long story short, we moved from this area to a town that is like half taken over, right? Half of it is kind of in control of the Kurdish youth. And then the other half is still in control of the the Turkish government. And at that point, we got arrested, which was unusual at the time because Turkey was quite authoritarian at that time. But it wasn't that bad. You know, they weren't really arresting journalists. And if they were, they'd kind of arrest them, maybe slap them around and let them out the same day. Unfortunately, we were like the first of a run, you know, a long run of, of course, I mean, they're the second biggest jailer of journalists worldwide now. It's changed hell of a lot since 2015. But we were the kind of the first people that that happened to and they arrested us charged us with terrorism obviously we'd done nothing i've never fired a gun i've never picked up a weapon we were just there to report and film what's happening but for them they wanted us to stop doing that because there were war crimes happening you know we'd filmed there was a young girl who was about 13 who had like a bullet lodged in her back and shrapnel in her head and she couldn't go to the hospital because the turkish military were stationing tanks outside the hospital so anyone that went there that was injured was just being arrested as a terrorist, even though it was like children were living in these areas. Of course, they're going to get hurt. So in the end, I mean, the youngest girl, I think she was 11. She was a 11 year old that was murdered. And the press release was that she was a terrorist that was neutralized. And it's like she was an 11 year old girl, man. <laughs> like she died in her house when it got hit. My point is, it was getting very nasty. And war is war. You know, war is nasty. Unfortunately, that's what happens. But basically, they wanted, to, I think they just wanted to look at what we've been filming. And when they arrested us, and they saw some of our footage, they were like, ah, okay, you've been side by side with the PKK when we've been trying to kill them. Naturally, unfortunately, they don't understand the idea of independent journalism. The only journalism that the state accepts is state journalism, which is all propaganda. So obviously, they just were like, right, go to prison goodbye <laughs> you know and we spent like we didn't me and my friend phil like who we were filming with we spent like 11 days in there and then we got deported but we were in like man like four different jails all max security and then our friend rasul he spent like 131 days there because he's kurdish you know he was our translator so unfortunately he had to stay a little bit longer but everything's good now we released he's all released he's all safe he's no longer there and it's all good but very interesting time in my life man you know very interesting 
There's a part where the kids are loading up Molotov cocktails to throw at Turkish soldiers and you're told you can push forward to film the more intense fighting. Like it's late at night, you're in a hostile environment and you're surrounded by gunfire, you know. How do you keep calm in a situation like that from a mental health perspective? Well, for me, it's like I put myself there, right? Not a fighter either. I didn't go to fight. I didn't go to, you know, I just went to report on what's happening. So it's like I've decided to go there firstly. So why go there and then be like, overcome with fear you're useless at that point you've basically put yourself in danger to become completely useless so for me it's like obviously there are i'm not i'm not brave you know but there are certain times where it's like right i'm scared but i've come here for a reason and i've got to do my job so let's do it you know so so you you just kind of have to be like right put your head on take a deep breath focus on what's going on and certainly when i was younger i, I had more of like uh uh oh man i don't think i fully understood danger really back then until i got arrested and realized like yeah your life can end you know like i think i was just i mean i knew i could die obviously but i just think i was like whatever who cares let's get the footage you know i was a little bit reckless definitely you know i was excited you know the danger excited me a little bit too much i would, I would probably say now i'm a lot more measured i'm a lot more you know i'm 30 now i was 24 25 back then but I'm a lot more measured now. And it's like, I go there, I put myself in danger to see what's happening because I believe that you have to be at the front line to understand the war properly. I don't believe you can understand it unless you've seen what the people fighting at the very front are going through. You can understand it, but not fully. I think you have to know the risks that are happening and how intense the war is and how the communication between the frontline fighters and civilians, is there a disconnect there? Like, I think you just have to see it all. And so for me, I'll go, I'll get that, and then I'm out. Whereas before, when I was younger, I would just be like, almost like trying to get every clip, every bullet that gets fired, we got to film it. It's like, no, that's just stupid and reckless. So yeah, I guess when I was younger, like I just wasn't, I didn't have that much fear. I don't know why, like I just didn't. I had like, look, I've been given this amazing opportunity. And for me, it was like the way to prove myself is to get the good footage. And I was unfortunately willing to risk my life. And obviously, as we know now, my freedom to do it. Now I'm a little bit more measured and a lot more apprehensive. And I think I'm a better reporter for it. But now, like my way of keeping calm, I guess, is to just realize that like the people there live this every day. There's no point going there to become a liability to them. They're living every day under this hell. If you go there and then you start like shitting yourself and cause a scene, you're just a liability and you could put their lives in danger. So if they're saying we're going here and you say, okay, we're going, you go. And then when you're ready to go, you leave. You don't start panicking. You don't start because that's going to mess you up, man. It's going to mess them up. You're their guest, essentially. And you should always remember that. You know, It's not like, oh, the journalist has come here to report on you, to help you. It's like, no, nah, man, actually, you're kind of helping each other. I've got two films left to talk to you about. The first one you put out in March 2017, which was called Gangs of Mau Mau. Now, the name is self-explanatory to some degree, but for the listeners who don't know, it charts the rise of gang violence in Sweden's third largest city, Malmö, particularly amongst its ignored and impoverished immigrant population, where gang culture has been a form of violent pushback against ghettoization. Can you just tell me about this film and what it meant for your career? I guess on the scale of Dangerous, it was maybe a 6.5 out of 10, maybe a 6? Not even, man. People get the wrong idea. Like, gangsters are not going to, like, draw unnecessary attention to themselves. Like, it would be, what would they do? Kidnap and kill me? Like, it would be insane. Like, the police would pretty much let them get on with it for, like, however long, you know? So you have to weigh that up as well. Like, somebody said to me, it's crazy. Like, 
how did you do that? It's like, you just got to think logically. Why would they kill me? If you went to meet ISIS, it's like, yeah, they're probably going to kill me because, you know, that's what they do. Obviously, I didn't go and meet ISIS. But if you go and meet some like gangster in Malmo, firstly, he's got a big ego already. Secondly, he doesn't want the police on him too much. So why would he then do something to you? You know, I know how to get on with people, man. Like, I know I'm not going to upset him too much unless he's a wild, like, loose cannon, maybe. But but anyway, so I, I went there and... Yeah, it's a weird story. The big problem was at the time it was quite a big issue. So to give you an idea of why it's an issue, more explosives go off in Malmo, the third largest city in Sweden, than anywhere else in Europe. More than in Ukraine where there's a war on. (laughs) You know what I'm saying? There's so many grenade attacks and bomb attacks in Malmo. It's fucking mad. And it's not political. It's all crime. And I've got some friends from there and that live there and... You know, I, I was learning from it from them and they're immigrant from immigrant backgrounds. A lot of them are Kurdish or Arabic. And they were just saying that the left was doing them a real disservice because the left was saying, don't bring it up. Don't talk about it because the right was saying, oh, all the immigrants are being violent. But then the non-violent immigrants were like, we want to hear about this. Like people need to know because we're getting in the crossfire and we're nothing to do with it. I had a friend that lived there who looked like someone that was wanted, like the gangs wanted to kill him. And he had to move for like six months just in case of accidental mistaken identity. Like only when the kid had been killed, did he feel safe to come back? Like it's so fucked up, right? So you had the left was saying like, oh no, it's not actually a big deal. What about Chicago in America? Oh, yeah, like Malmo is Malmo, a small Scandinavian city is somehow comparable to a huge American city. It's it's just such a false comparison, right? There's more guns than people in America. You can't compare the two. So I was like, right, the left are like chatting shit. And then the right are also chatting shit because the right were like, oh, every immigrant there is a terrorist and a criminal. And it's like, no, it's nothing to do with where they're from. It's to do with them being ignored by the state. So Sweden does this typical neoliberal thing of oh yeah, we'll move all these immigrants in so it looks good, like, oh yeah, we accept immigrants and then do nothing for them. Now, you can't just do that. No matter what you think, you're left, you're conservative, you're whatever, all that boring shit. No matter what, you can't just say, yeah, just put someone there. They don't speak the language and they have nothing. You can't then just expect them to thrive just because why? You give them benefits and something. You have to do a little bit more. And the right were going on about integration. It's like, well, what did the state do to help integrate them? They did nothing. They just pushed them out there. And when the crime happened, it was almost like, you know, the response from the police was almost like, let them kill each other sort of thing. And I interviewed a policeman in this in this whole thing. And he was like, oh, there have been 30 murders this year. And it was like halfway through the year. And I was like, how many have been solved? And he was like, two. No, one. And then he was like, is it even one? He's like, yeah, one, kind of. You know what I'm saying? So like, there's clearly a problem. And then we went and interviewed this Iraqi family, all immigrants from Iraq, and their son had been killed in some like mistaken identity identity case again, which happened so much there. And by all accounts, even the police said like, no, he wasn't a gang member. Like he was just a normal kid who accidentally got shot. And they're saying like, this is crazy. The government has to do something. Why isn't people paying attention to this? So that for me was like a very big eye-opener into the politicization of over-the-top crime situations where everybody just wants their peace and they want to push their own fake agenda onto it. It's mostly right-wingers that do that, but the left-wing also do it. They want to pretend that, oh, this isn't happening there. And, and tw- I come from like a, a leftist family. I'm not shitting on leftists at all. But this new leftism is very happy to put their head under the sand as much as the right-wingers are. And it was unfortunate to see. So it was a very good eye-opener for me. And then what got even more eye-opening was, you know, I was working for Vice HBO at the time, and it was meant to go out on HBO, right, on the channel. And 
all my other docs had whilst working for them. It was no problem. And then this editor from the US was like, we can't put this out. It makes immigrants look bad. And I was like, what? Like, like the people that were arguing for like, we need change, we need help, were the immigrants, the immigrant community. So you want to ignore them because you're worried that some like woke idiot might get offended. You know what I'm saying? So I, you know, I got a little bit confrontational and I had a rough cut. And I, I think I said something insane. Like, if you don't put it out, I'm going to put it out. I'll just release it. Because I just felt like, you know, this family, this Iraqi family had allowed us to film after this there were like it was like a week since their kid had been killed grief stricken and i just felt we had a duty to show the world like how this has happened to them you know and we filmed with some gangster as well that was quite clever actually like he kind of made a lot of good points unfortunately that the situation he was in for me it was just no this has to go out in the end there was a compromise and it went out on the youtube and it didn't go out on hbo which is a big shame but it did go out you know it went on the vice youtube so yeah, anyway, it's a long-winded way of saying that like, that was a very different but eye-opening documentary for me, definitely. The film that you said to me off-air, which you were most proud of, mate, was called Guarding Raqqa from ISIS Sleeper Cells in Syria, which you made independently as part of your platform Popular Front. Can you tell the listeners about that film and why it holds that place for you, your career, maybe your mental health as well? Sure. I mean, it's one of my most proud pieces because it was kind of like... I've been covering Kurdish issues for a long time, right? And when I got arrested, I couldn't obviously couldn't go back to Turkey where I'd been covering most of the clashes. Did a little bit of reporting from Iraqi Kurdistan. Like Kurdistan is kind of split up into four different parts between Turkey, Syria, Iraq, and Iran. Iran is a no-go for me because obviously I'd be arrested because of my, you know, this is quite a dictatorship there. So I managed to get to Northeast Syria and I didn't get there at the height of the war when I wanted to go. I just, for whatever reason, Vice had other people on it. I couldn't go there. So for me, it was like I was two years into like making my own platform. And within that time, I was in Syria, in Raqqa, reporting on the front line there and filming after the clashes as well. Because a lot of journalists, once the action's gone, they leave and they don't care anymore. For me, it was good to go there after the main initial action was happening and to see like, you know, we were filmed with this group of like a militia, they call themselves the Asais, they're like internal security, if you like. But the project that the Kurds are trying to set up there in their areas of control is kind of like a left libertarian concept. So they're not about we're the police, you're the people. It's kind of meant to be integrated, you know, and it was quite a nice thing to see that process happening in real time. Another big thing they're trying to do is like integrate different ethnicities so obviously they're Kurds and the Kurds don't get on with the Arabs and the Arabs don't get on with whoever and so they're trying to kind of put an end to that or at least trying to create tolerance so it was really interesting we were like with a group working for the Kurds essentially that were made up of almost all Arabs apart from one guy who was like a Kurd and it was really nice to see them from they were from Raqqa they lived under ISIS but obviously had never joined they weren't extremists and once the YPG the Kurdish militia with the help of America, had like got rid of ISIS, you know, fought them and, and kind of kicked them out of Raqqa. They then went and joined them and were like, hey, we like what you did here. Can we join? And instead of being like, no, you've been living under ISIS, the Kurds said, all right, like we'll set up a force where you can look after your own neighborhood now. So it was just a very interesting concept to see happening in the middle of one of the most brutal war zones on earth. We were just on patrol through Raqqa. The whole city has just fallen to pieces. It looks like a meteor has hit it. ISIS are everywhere still. You know, there's sleeper cells everywhere. It's very clear, you know, the ISIS guys that have kind of floated into the background, if you like, looking at you like dirt. Our fixer, our translator, she was a female and seeing a female working without a hijab was 
very disturbing to a lot of the extremists. You could just see it. One of the people on the security detail, like one of the fighters we were with was a female because that's another thing that occurred to They allow female and male fighters to mix and whatever. So you could feel the hate from them, you know? And I'd say like, am I being crazy? Or I swear them guys are staring at us and they'd be like, oh yeah, they're waiting, you know, they're waiting to kill us basically. And and they weren't joking. Like, you know, the, I think a week before we arrived, there'd been two car bomb attacks from ISIS sleeper cells. So for me, it was just a very proud moment in my career to say I've taken my own independent platform all the way to Syria on a shoestring. And I've made a documentary there that is important to show the aftermath of the war and how people are trying to cope and how the kind of ethnic solidarity is actually working to a degree there, you know, and it was just I'm very proud of that documentary. There's not a lot to it. You know, I was actually there to help another guy produce an audio documentary series that he was doing. And as part of the deal, I went there and did my doc. You know, it's a ride along through Raqqa, but I think you get a lot from it. So essentially a long interview. For me, it meant a lot. Like we've mentioned, you decided to go independent and you have now got your own platform called Popular Front. You've got two podcasts as well. One's called Popular Front and one's called Q Clearance. Can you talk to me about when you decided to go independent and then the two podcasts that you've got as well, because one on Q I found just fascinating and it opened my eyes to a lot of things too. So in 2018, you know, like I'd left Vice and I couldn't freelance for them anymore. Like we'd had a big falling out. Like I was just very frankly disgusted at the way a lot of us were treated because Vice News UK and the original Vice News UK, we did something like 80% of the output And I think we won like 90% of the awards, you know, 90% of the films that won awards were us. Americans claimed a lot of credit for it because obviously the Vice is based in the US and that's fine or whatever. But then when they kind of HBO took over, they just fired us all. You know, we made Vice News successful on very little money and they just fired us all. I didn't get fired actually. I was one of the few that was allowed to remain. The best people, they fired a lot of them, all my colleagues, friends and they just like started hiring all these like oh we're hiring people from the new york times now it's like so fucking what who cares like we were meant to be adversarial to them we were meant to be like we don't need them and all of a sudden now we're just the same as mainstream like what the fuck is this so i had some big fallings out with them and eventually left and then even after freelancing they started fucking up my docs and i was like i'm not doing this no more so i stopped working for them and then i started doing like a few bits here work was drying up or just becoming boring and I was just doing like easy, like producing things where like, I'd go and put, you know, like I made a doc for Boiler Room, which was fine. I made a doc for like, you know, I was working with like Joe Media even for a while, like a little while, just helping them make more serious documentaries, which it turns out they weren't serious about at all. They didn't really want that. They asked for something, you give it to them and then they just go like, no. So, you know, I did very little there and I was like, you know what, fuck this shit. I know what I know. I'm good at war and conflict. You know, I'm confident in my own abilities to like build up my own network so we started with popular front as a podcast because i had no money and it's easy right you know it doesn't cost a lot right so started that up 2018 and you know the podcast is about we say the kind of niche details of modern warfare and underreported conflicts so basically what that means is you know you might see a five minute package about syria on bbc news but on popular front you might get a two-hour documentary about one specific militia you know like we have a three-hour podcast episode just about the Christian militias within Syria. So we go into a lot, a lot more detail and, and all that. And it became clear that 
I mean, very, very quickly by episode 10, it was a hit, you know, like it, it just went through the roof. Everyone loved it. And also the ethos to Popular Front, we don't accept any corporate sponsorship. There's no fucking mattress adverts. There's no like dick pill adverts. None of that nonsense. We don't have that. Some people say we're anti-capitalist, but I wouldn't say that. I'd say we're just like anti-consumerist, anti-corporate, because I've seen that destroy what I love. Vice News was amazing until they allowed the corporate agenda to take it over. I don't even mean agenda is in like, you know, all these conspiracy kooks. I don't mean that. It was just very clear that they wanted a certain thing. We never had that before. We didn't have restrictions. It was like, go there and tell us what's happening. Whereas after that, it was like, we need this. We need that. We need it to be like this. And, you know, they stopped caring less about the truth and more about like what would get them kind of points on the internet. It was embarrassing. You know, I saw it go to an embarrassing state. So I never wanted that to happen to my platform. So the whole thing with Popular Front is like, no, we don't accept corporate sponsorship. We're very fair. We work, we, we try and work with like people from underprivileged backgrounds because I think there's a big problem with nepotism in journalism, especially in the higher echelons of media. So I was like, nah, man, let's give everyone a chance. And we just, you know, we gave a platform to loads of people that have been working very hard who hadn't, getting, like, hadn't been getting a lot of spotlight. And yeah, we turned it into a thing. And eventually the podcast got very successful and then, you know, we had a Patreon to fund it. And then the Patreon got to a point where I was like, wow, we can do documentaries now. And then we started making documentaries with Popular Front the same way I'd been doing with Vice News, you know, but on a less of even less money. I did everything. I was the reporter, the producer, the researcher, the editor, like literally like my one of my friends from back in the day makes the music. Like I got friend making graphic. Everything is all done on a shoestring and it's all the community. You know, it's all a slot and everyone gets paid. You know, if I'm, when I was making nothing from it, everyone was still getting paid, you know, if, even if it's a crumb. You know, I always say, if, if I'm eating, everyone at the table's got to eat, man. It's not about, it's about being fair. And anyway, we, I just wanted to like employ this fairness back within journalism, or at least within my journalism. I don't know, people liked it, man. And, and now we're fucking flying, man. I'd say without any hesitation that we're probably one of, if not the fastest growing independent media in the world right now when it comes to conflict journalism. I don't know anyone else that's doing it independently, we're even more than independent. I mean, Guardian argues that they're independent, but then they're like, you know, they have big, big corporate sponsorships. Like, we don't have, even have that. We're just grassroots, man. We we sell subscriptions on the Patreon. People get bonus episodes of bonus content, or we sell merchandise, which, believe it or not, people love. But, like, other than that, it's, like, it's all just us, man. Like, it's all just us grafting. And I think that's the way it should be, especially with conflict journalism, because the people you're, you're, you're meeting are grafting, like, for their lives, you know what I'm saying? So... I don't know, I like the model. It's working for me. It won't work for everybody. And also we are saying as well, like on one hand, we are for everyone. Like we have on our website, we say like, you don't need a PhD to be on this. You don't need any of that. But at the same time, Popular Front isn't for everyone. Like we're not going to cater ourselves to hear everyone's taste. This is what's happening and this is how we tell it. And for some people, they love it. A lot of people love it. A lot of people hate us because we're very cheeky and we're rude to like mainstream and that. That's how we are, you know, that's Popular Front. That's great to hear, man. And the way you share your values about it has so many similarities to me with Venn and how I try and run the podcast for sure. I just want to say one quote before I go on to the next question, which made me laugh out loud quite a lot, actually. It was quite a dark topic, but you said, I'm very much in favour of free speech. and I do not like people who say, oh, free speech is just a code word for right-wing populism or whatever it is people say now. But the idea of being a free speech absolutist means you allow people to be victimised and abused on your website is absolute, complete fucking nonsense. That was one of my favorite quotes on your uh, Q clearance episode. 
Yeah, I think that's true, right? Oh, like, oh, sorry, I didn't mention crew clearance. So crew clearance is like, ironically enough, when I was like working for other people, it was very hard for me to get in anywhere else just because I'm a bit of a gobshite. I got a big mouth. And if someone does something wrong, I kind of say it. So people were like, oh, God, you know, I, I taught myself out of, of a lot of work, you know, because I'm an idiot. But then after doing Popular Front, now everyone want to work with me. You know what I mean? And suddenly they don't care that I'm a gobshite. They like it now. It's like, how does that make sense? But whatever, man. So, but anyway, iHeartRadio, they were like, oh, we should do something with kind of Popular Front collab. And I was like, nah, like Popular Front has to stay independent. But I've got some other ideas outside of War and Conflict. And, you know, there's this crazy conspiracy theory Q clearance was coming off the back of that. So QAnon is the conspiracy theory. Q clearance is this podcast I've been doing. Basically, we're trying to show who is behind it, but also trying to teach people why it's complete fucking nonsense and doing that without talking down to people. You know, unfortunately, I do understand why people get involved in conspiracy theory nonsense. And I don't want to be like, oh, you're so stupid. Like, it's like, no, you have to understand these people it's a breakdown of trust in the media. It's a break- breakdown of trust in the government. And I actually feel a lot, you know, very similar to a lot of these people. I don't trust our governments. I don't trust a lot of the media. However, I don't trust them for other reasons. It's not because I think a big lizard man is running the country or I don't think that the Jews are controlling everything or whatever nonsense it is they come out with. But it's felt important for me to say, like, let's do this documentary series and let's show the people like what's actually happening. I did a lot, a lot, a lot of deep research into it. And the hardest thing has been explaining it in a way that's not too difficult to understand. Breaking down technical stuff, but in an easy to understand way. And I think all the feedback I've got on Q clearance is literally everyone just saying, I can't believe I understood that. Like, And that's really, I'm glad that like people are feeling that. And to talk about that quote, yeah, like I, I do believe in freedom of speech. And I hate there's this thing now people are like, huh, freedom of speech. What are you, a Nazi? Like, no, they literally stopped freedom of speech. But it's like, basically, freedom of speech is, it's a pure thing. It is or it isn't. There is freedom of speech or there isn't. There's gray areas to it, but you can't just bastardize it. You can't say because some Nazi said about freedom of speech, therefore, I don't equate freedom of speech with freedom of speech no more. You can't. You have to say like, no, let's accept this is what freedom of speech is. And just because a load of idiots are saying it's one thing or another thing, it still remains what it is. It doesn't change. And you can't just suddenly start shutting people down because you don't like their ideas. Someone's a fascist. They make me sick. But you you can't just then say you're not allowed to think this. Because unfortunately, ideas we don't like have to be tolerated. But what I was saying, what I said about the nonsense is when those ideas then become oh, I want to kill the Jews. It's like, well, no, for me, it's like, well, that's not free speech anymore because you're trying to stop someone else's freedom, right? What is free about that speech now? You're trying to use that speech as a weapon to get other people to stop their freedom of speech. So it doesn't become that anymore for me. Now, a lot of people would disagree with me, but like I said, I'm not an absolutist on it, but uh, I certainly am not one of these people that's like, oh, I'm offended, I shouldn't have to hear that. No one has a right to not be offended. You're not born with that right. You, you should be offended sometimes. It's how you grow. It's how you learn what you're actually about. I've got one final question now, mate, and it's just a reflection on your journalism journey. So I think it's fair to say you probably witnessed some of the worst behaviours and capacity of human nature at times during your career. Do you think that's impacted your worldview, made you lose faith in humanity at times, or given you a cynical or nihilistic perspective on life? What can you tell me here? And, and what have these experiences taught you about yourself, do you think? Yeah, it's it's definitely made me more cynical. And I think some people 
kind of think I'm a nihilist to a degree just because of things I, look things I've seen have made me lose faith in like this idea that everyone has some good in them is just not true or maybe for me it's not like I just think just because someone like is good in one way I believe that the evil can cancel them out you know what I mean like if some ISIS guy who had like a Yazidi sex slave you don't be like well he was a good father to his kids so what you know, he's got a sex slave, like he's a scumbag, he's he's evil, he's disgusting. Even saying the word evil, do I even believe in evil? I don't even know if I believe in evil, like possibly whatever like I've seen in some of war, like it is evil, there are elements of it that's evil, but that's what I would call it. It's just, I don't know what else to call it. Probably the best way to describe it is evil. But yeah, like I was, I've always been cynical though. I've always been a cynical guy, quite pessimistic, quite negative, you know, just quite a kind of negative Nancy, just because I'm always very often disappointed in just like my life or or my interactions, you know. Like I remember there was one point where someone said to me a couple of years ago, oh, you expect too much from people. And I took it on and thought, yeah, I do. And then I realized as I got a bit older, I thought I don't actually. I, I expect the right amount, actually. I, if I'm loyal to you, you be loyal to me. If I look after you, you look after me. I expect the right amount, in my opinion. And it's just the way that other people, not that I'm like right, but it's the way that other people behave. Okay, they might not care that I've been this way to them. Now, I can still be disappointed, <laughs> you know, that the world is like that. So I'm a very like loyal friend. I'm there for people if I have to be, if they need me, like I make sure of that. So when you don't see that reciprocated, not just in my life, but in the war and wherever, it becomes very glaringly obvious to me that like, it's fine. No wonder I'm pessimistic, you know, like, and certainly being cynical is an important trait in journalism. I was very fresh faced when I first went into it. And I think I would go and do this job and I'd hear something someone would say and be like, wow, that's crazy. You know, I'd learn a bit more and then realize like, oh, they were just lying. They were just outright lying in my face. Uh, you know, this is very controversial to say, but you know, I don't care. This is almost a thing within journalism where if you meet a refugee, everything they say is gospel. And it's like, well, in a way, that's kind of fetishizing them because you're acting like they're not human. They're almost infallible, which is wrong. But at the same time, it's bad journalism because a refugee can lie to you anywhere that I can lie to you or any, you know what I'm saying? So when I started learning stuff like that, it's like, and I, you, no wonder they're lying. Like I would, like imagine you were stranded somewhere. I'm like, fuck, man, I could do anything to get to safety, anything to get healthy or whatever. It's not a criticism on them, but you have to recognize they're the same as you and me. Like don't treat them like they're exceptional humans. Like they've tried very hard to get wherever they're getting and they've tried hard, but they don't want to be treated like that. They want to be treated equally. They're not your headline. They're a human being. You have to really, it sounds weird, but in a roundabout way, you actually have to, be cynical to those people as well you know understanding and feel bad for them but you can't then just go oh well, that side is okay to i'll have to do all the emotional like sympathetic stuff but then forget all of the cynicism because that you're not treating them like a human you're just treating them like a vehicle for your story because it's convenient and that's not good so i learned a lot about cynicism and i learned a lot about the lengths that your fellow man and woman will go to to inflict pain on someone else based on very little like the turks and the kurds are just massacring and killing each other or the Azeris right now killing the Armenians. I mean, that's a good example. Like the videos coming out of Azerbaijan right now, there were like dozens of videos of like Azeri soldiers, like cutting off people's ears, cutting off their heads, kicking their heads around. You know what I mean? Just unbelievable levels of just grotesque behavior. And the world is 
pretty much quiet about it. You know, like the UN doesn't really give a fuck. You know, NATO doesn't really care. Like that's another thing I learned from my reporting was that like these kind of big organizations, the EU, NATO, the UN, they're not moral organizations. We're presented like they are. They're not moral at all. They don't have a soul. They're diplomatic. And that's understandable. Fine. But I, sh- I just think people should understand that they're diplomatic and, and stop thinking that they're infallible and they have any moral compass. The only time they have a moral compass is when it's convenient. Azerbaijan, it's not that interesting. Armenia, it's out of their way. It's, you know, kind of close to Russia. For the UN, honestly, it's more convenient that the Azeris won because Turkey were helping them and Turkey's in the, you know, UN. And so they're kind of quiet on the war crimes. There's many war crimes that members of the UN have dealt out they've been recorded on camera it's completely confirmed that they happened and the UN have just said nothing like they just ignore it and it's like why because it was convenient if they were a moral organization they'd do something and I'm not saying they need to intervene I'm not whatever but they would at least say something and then they sometimes say we're deeply concerned another empty statement I'm not arguing that they should do something or not but I'm at least arguing that we should stop seeing them as like infallible moral organizations Oh, they sent aid to Africa. So what? Do you know what happens when you get there? What happens? They give it to the wrong people often. And the people that need it the most get fucked over. I've seen it, man. They're dealing with other corrupt states. It needs to be person to person, in my opinion. Direct democracy, like direct exchange of whatever. It's never going to happen. That's another thing I've learned. There's never going to be a world revolution. There's never, like, things are going to get a little bit better here and there. But... I don't know, like, like life is pain mostly, <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, but I've kind of become comfortable with that and accepting that. And in a way, it makes the good moments better for me. I've seen so much horrific stuff. And within the horrific stuff, I've seen so much goodness. And for the goodness to take place in the war zone or in the worst places possible, for me, it just keeps me going. Accepting this is hell, but good things can happen in hell. It's almost more comforting to me than trying to think that the world is great and it's going to get better. We've checked in about your journalism journey, mate. Let's go a bit deeper and talk about your own journey in a bit more detail. So firstly, I ask all my guests this question. Why don't you talk me through your early life growing up in North Ants, your teenage years, and whether looking back, were there any early mental health experiences you can pinpoint? Who's the Jake we meet here? Yeah, man. I mean, you know, we spoke a little bit before and I, you know, I've never really spoken about it openly, but like my dad is like got a big drink problem. And I lived with my dad when I was young and, you know, a single father, like drinking a lot. And like, it was certainly not ideal. It was definitely like, you, you see things as a young man that you probably shouldn't see, like fucking randomers in your house at like midnight. It just becomes like this lifestyle of like, when you become aware as a child that like you shouldn't be seeing stuff as a child. You know what I'm saying? Like, my family is not from, like, you know, they're not a big family of addicts or anything like that. Like, I remember, like, one of my neighbors, a lad I used to play with, like, his whole family were, like, addicts. Like, they'd never had a job. Back as far as his grandma. Like, my family had always worked hard. My dad was, like, the anomaly where he just put us in this situation where we didn't have any money and no jobs because of the addiction that he had. So... Growing up, I was always very anxious as a kid just because, you know, there's no security at home, really. There wasn't really a very secure place to feel just completely comfortable where you are. So that was always a struggle for me. I mean, it was nowhere near as bad as like, you know, I knew lads on our road that had like dads were heroin addicts and stuff, you know, like that was deep shit. Drink is bad, but it's not heroin. You know, I remember like you go out to play with them. 
and you would just know that something bad had happened and you know and i remember even as a kid thinking well at least my dad ain't like that you know my dad was a he's a good man you know just has a problem with this drink can't kick it never been able to kick it and yeah man we just had a weird childhood man like <laughs> just had a weird childhood where yeah it was just like constantly worrying about my dad and you know what i mean like oh is he okay and it was hard to do well at school as well because i was kind of just like it's hard to focus on school when you're thinking like is my dad gonna come and collect me drunk you know like you're primary school and you're just embarrassed and it's like you can't talk to anyone i would never talk about it as a kid i would just be like oh like you know my dad's fine like oh yeah everything's fine like pretending it wasn't happening and i think like that was always an issue as a kid and it was just something that was on my head a lot then i moved in with my mom like we didn't get on too well and and I had like two half sisters, but like I love them, you know, like my sisters. I don't couldn't sit in the half sisters or anything like that. But like, you know, it's just a weird family mixed, like a very mixed, broken about family. And and you know, my grandma and granddad were always like more my mum and dad. I feel the my mum and dad. They were like my dad's mum and dad, like my grandparents, they were like always there. But there's only so much your grandparents can do because of legal custody and the social and whatever. So yeah, man, it was a, it was a rocky childhood, I would say, and like I messed about a lot in school. In secondary school, I got big into like fighting, like fist fighting, which believe it or not, is just like a thing that happens in my town. It's a small, miserable town with nothing going for it. And unfortunately, you know, there's a culture of violence, you know, and I wasn't a big guy or anything, you know, I was a very skinny guy and I had a lot of problems, obviously growing up, but I was always very, you know, I got this from my granddad and my dad. And my grandma was all like, you have to stick up for people. So if my friends were getting banged about, I would put myself in the situation when I didn't need to. Well, I did need to, I feel. But like, you know, I probably shouldn't have and be like, hey, like, fuck you. What are you talking about? And then just get battered. You know, I wasn't a tough guy either. Like, I wasn't a big fighting guy. Like, I would just get banged out and that, you know what I mean? Like, I was a fucking getting beaten up all the time and stuff for a while. And then I think when I left school... You know, you start getting older, you become a teenager and you have your pride and your testosterone. And I feel like when I left school at 16, you know, with nothing, you know, I got into Thai boxing quite a lot more and got into boxing more and doing weights. I feel like that was bad in a way because I'd had all this like getting punched up at school and then just went bonkers on road. Just like, you know, like, ah, maybe you got banged in school and then just be like, no, that's never happening again. You know what I mean? So then it was almost like this complex of like, oh, I have to fight back now and I have to find this guy that did me wrong. And for a good like two years, perhaps in my teenage years, I was just fighting with guys that I'd fought with in school or, you know what I mean? I was like thinking like, don't think I'm a soft touch now, boy. Like, you know, I'll show you. And then you get older and you realize like, this is just nonsense. Like this whole thing is stupid. It's childish. You know what I mean? It's very childish. But unfortunately, you know, I didn't really have that guidance of like, this is stupid. I mean, don't get me wrong, you know, my granddad is very much in favour of you should be able to protect yourself, but he would certainly not know the level of ag that I was going through, you know what I mean? Like I was, you know, just getting in these stupid fighting situations and where I live, you can very easily get stabbed, like, you know, on my road, someone got stabbed to death this year, like, it's not that unusual, even in, like, small town in the Midlands, you know, people are horrifically violent at times. There was just a moment, I guess, where I had to learn myself, is what I'm saying. I had to realise, you know, certain things... Good things happen in my life that I don't really want to talk about publicly, but like, you know, good developments in my life with my family. And I realized, man, there's more than you. 
you're not important. Like, you know, like drop this ego shit, drop this pride shit. Like, oh, I got fist fight this guy because in school he hit me when I was like 15 and I didn't fight back enough. Or, you know what I mean? It's like, bro, what, man? It's pathetic. So I remember it getting to a point where I was just like, nah, man, I don't have this feeling anymore, you know? And that was very nice. When that feeling kind of went away, feeling like you have to have this pride in some stupid fist fight. Then everything else started falling into place. Then I realized the people that I was hanging out with were no good, you know, and I just left them and they weren't good people to be around. And then you start realizing, you know, you have to be a professional. You have to be there for people. You have to be not just a ball of chaos because that's not useful to anyone. That's just childish and it's not useful. So for me, I know it's a long way of explaining it, but for me, yeah, that was like the biggest hurdles growing up. And, you know, whatever hole I had in me, whatever, like kind of got filled. And I was like, you know what? Let's live life, man. Like, let's be successful. Let's build a career. Let's build this. And only once you let go, I think, of that anger and resentment, then can you start building up. But for me, it was hard to do on my own. But like I said, I read a lot of books and I got into not like self-help, but I just realized through the books I was reading that there's another life. You don't have to be this angry ball of chaos. You can be like good person, a good reliable person. So it worked out in the end, you know. <laughs> you told me off air, you're pretty sure you have undiagnosed ADHD, which I guess could actually come back to the question we talked about when it came to self-care and you're not wanting to kind of sit still for any period of time. But you were pretty dismissive of people labeling you back then as a teenager. You just thought you were a bit different. I guess we all didn't like labels back then either as well. How does this... I guess, undiagnosed ADHD affect you then and now as an adult? Yeah, I mean, I kind of say it as a joke because so many people have said it to me in my life, like, man, you got ADHD, like, what the fuck is wrong with you? Like, too much energy or, like, busy, busy or, like, you know, move. I'm constantly fidgeting. I never stop moving. I do find it hard to concentrate. But that's when I get bored. Like, if I'm bored, I'm just like, I'm out. But if I find something that I can occupy my time with, I'll concentrate on it forever. The way I taught myself to be a reporter, be a journalist was just concentrating on it, focusing whilst all like people I knew were like, you know, on road doing drugs and getting drunk. I was like, nah, that's not me. This is, I don't want that. I'm going to learn. I'm going to teach myself. Obviously, don't get me wrong. I like to go out on that. But for me, it was like, there has to be something more than this. So I could focus. But a lot of people have said to me, I think more in the media world, because like, I don't know, I'm a very, I don't know, a bit weird, you know, so like you meet people in the media world that are quite normal, whatever that means. So then they find you a bit weird. And they kind of say like, oh, you must have this. And I remember like someone told me to do like the online test. And it said I've like, I think it was like severe possibility of ADHD, you know what I mean? But like, what am I going to do? Go to the doctors and get like put to sleep on some pills. I feel okay. I'm quite highly strung, you know, my granddad says that, but I feel like I got my shit in order. And also, like, I do understand there's a time and a place for certain energies, you know what I mean? Like, that's something I've learned. Yeah, certain way energies that you have need to be put in a box for some time. Like, there's this thing of, oh, just let people be who they are all the time. Like, not really. In a civilized world where you want to get on with each other, you have to sometimes, you can't just burden everyone with your energy. You know what I'm saying? Like, I could very easily burden someone i could be very overbearing if i'm not careful so i think for me you know maybe i do have adhd i don't fucking know i mean what does that even mean it doesn't mean anything really i don't know maybe i have it but just have to be aware of myself and not burdening other people with it and just be calm and relaxed and know when to talk to people like you've said to me before like you know it's always good to go and air these things and this is why i kind of agreed to to do this and 
even speak about like, oh, my dad or whatever. It's like, who cares about that? I'm just some war reporter. But, you know, after talking to you, I thought, no, this guy's right. It's probably good because there might be someone else that's in that situation who might go like, oh, shit. Well, maybe I'm not a fuck up forever. Maybe I can pull out of this. Because trust me, I'm no one. You know what I mean? I'm no one, man. It's not like I'm anything special. I just worked really hard at it. Anyone else can. So I think that it's good to talk about this stuff. I tried to go like therapist a few times once when I got out of prison, actually, like Vice kind of made us go. But for me, that didn't really do much. But we find it in other ways, you know. I'm not against it. It just for me, I haven't found the right one, you know. I completely agree with you, mate. And I'm really passionate about adopting an individual-based approach to medication or therapy or whatever it is when it comes to people's mental health. You did tell me off-air that as an adult, you do take medication for depression. Now, some people don't need it, whilst for others, it literally helps them function and get through day-to-day life. Can you tell me about your experiences of it as you told me also off air that you're able to sort of weaponize it to your advantage as well when it comes to like work productivity, but also one side effect can be it exacerbates your outspokenness. Is that right? Yeah. (laughs) So, I mean, yeah, it's no secret. Like I've spoken about, you know, I've struggled with depression since I was about 21 was when I first, you know, I went to the doctors and I was like, I don't know what is wrong with me. And they were just like, yeah, you've got like depression. I was like, oh, what? Like, what What do I need to be depressed about? But that's when I started learning that depression comes in many different ways. You know, it doesn't just mean grumpy face or whatever you think it, you know, think of it as a kid. Eventually, like I learned to realize that this is something I will always have and I will just learn to live with it. You know what I mean? It's not something that goes away. That's the same with happiness. That's another thing I learned, like I came to realize, which sounds obvious to some people. For me, it wasn't so much. But like you realize that like people aren't happy as in like that person's happy all the time. And that's that happiness just comes and goes. Like life is generally boring, mostly or just mundane or normal. And happiness comes and it goes and depression comes and it goes, you know, so I learned to kind of ride that whole wave. So yeah, man, as I started taking Citalopram was the first like SSRI the doctors ever put me on and immediately it worked, you know, like immediately it was like, I was very lucky. Like I got a lot of friends that, you know, they've cycled through 10 different SSRIs, 10 different medications, and they're still struggling. You know what I mean? But for me, you know, I mean, I I, I filled out like a five questionnaire, five question questionnaire or whatever in the docs. And they're like, here's some medication. And I was like, man, this is bullshit. Like what the fuck? But I was like, you know, I'll take it, whatever, try it. And it just worked. I prefer myself when I'm on it because I'm a, it just slows me down a little bit. It doesn't make me a zombie. It doesn't make me not me, but it slows me down a little bit. Now, when, you know, I was saying to you that I weaponize it, like sometimes, you know, if I've got a work project on, I need energy. And the one, the bad thing that Citalopram does is make me fatigued. You know, like I do all of this stuff and people are like, wow, how do you work so much? And I'm thinking like, man, if I didn't have the Citalopram, I'd be doing double. I would be working harder, man. And it just slows me down. So, you know, every so often... I take it down to like a half dose, like 20 milligram to 10 milligram. And for four, three or four days, there's just like this burst of energy. And it's like, wham, like, you know, like fucking roadrunner, man. Like there's no stopping me. But then there's a problem with sleeping. And then at the end of that kind of, as you level out, as your chemical imbalance starts to level out and get used to the 10 milligram, you start realizing that the highs are good, but the lows hurt more you know you start feeling the lows a little bit more i've been knocked down recently to like 10 milligrams just because i was sick of feeling tired all the time and winter made me even more tired so recently i started feeling like like oh yeah that's what that low feels like you remember again like oh yeah that crippling fear of nothing you know me and my friend call it the pit i'm like i'm in the fucking pit man like that's you know it's dark but that's how we get through with comedy with each other like bro i'm fucking miserable 
I'm so depressed and it's like, get out the pit, man. You've got to get out. There's no other option. You've got to get out, you know? And yeah, you know, I've got a few good friends that I can talk to about that. And I always talk to my friends about like openly about my medication. I've always been open about that because, you know, it's nothing. Like half the world's on fucking antidepressants. And I also like it when I, I feel, you know, I've spoke to a few friends about it and they'll be like, oh yeah, yeah, I'm taking that as well. Or I'm taking something. And I know that they feel a burden is lifted to talk about it because I'm not, I don't know. I don't know if it's community background or whatever, but it, it isn't that normal to be constantly on a medication and talk about it. You know what I mean? It's not normal, like really in my group of friends to talk about it, but it is completely accepted you know like if i said hey man like just to let you know like i told my best friend the other day i said just to let you know man i'm fucking i'm gonna like cut my meds down to like half dose if you see me being a pain in the ass just fucking tell me <laughs> you know what i mean like just just be aware of it and just be like wait you're being a prat or like are you okay sort of thing so not that you know it's it's a telepram it's pretty weak you know it's not like a strong antidepressant but it, you're not going to spin out of control but it's just like you have to let your people know i think you know it's just fair the final part of this topic that you wanted to discuss, mate, was uh, the tragic recent passing of a close friend of yours to suicide in 2020. If you could, and going into as much or as little detail as you want, just tell me a bit about the build-up to his passing, the event itself, and then the aftermath and the grieving process. Yeah, man. I mean, that's really fucking hit me hard, man. My friend Archie, God rest his soul, like he committed suicide last month. It's his funeral this week, actually. Got to go to that and... It's been hard, man, because he was, you know, I, I don't want to talk too much personally on his life because that's up to his family and that. He, you know, I had two friends, brothers, that I was very good friends with them growing up from the age of about like 15. I've probably known them longer than that, actually. Yeah, no, from like the age of about 14. And the two brothers, you know, the oldest one I was very good friends with and his younger brother I was good friends with. And then the youngest one was Archie. And we, you know, we'd always known him, always seen him around, a very funny kid. And this was like a very kind of, they were a wild family, man. <laughs> you know, like very wild, wild boys, you know, very good guys, but like wild. So, you know, we got on really well. Getting older, I got to know Archie as well, a little bit more, you know, like the younger brother. And then he became like a friend of mine, not just my friend's brother. You know what I mean? It's like, no, nah, he's my friend, man. And he struggled, man. He had these demons in him, you know, and he always, man, I can't believe he's fucking dead, man. It's mad, actually, when you think about it. Like, it's just so sad. Like, he had these demons, man. You know, we spoke about him because obviously I've, you know, I've dealt with depression. His brothers have as well. And we all spoke about it quite openly, you know, and, and I, I saw him in January and, you know, I took him out because I know he'd had a few problems with the depression and trying to help him out. And, you know, he was he was up again. He was up again a bit and, you know, and he was up and his brother, his brother did everything for him. Like his oldest brother did like literally everything for him, you know, and his dad and his mom. And, and, and then no matter what, he just couldn't, get to the point where he could progress, get up again, like a bit happier. But then it would always just, it just, I don't know, man. Like there was some, like I said, there was a, there was a darkness in him that he couldn't quite escape. And yeah, man, unfortunately, very tragically committed suicide in November. And it's just been very hard, man. It's like, it's the first time anything like that has happened to me so close, you know? He was just such a lovely lad and he was just so full of life and he was so witty and funny. He was like, he was like from such a like, such a wild growing up time, you know, like such a, I remember like, you know, he's the youngest brother, these two mad brothers and whatever. And he was always able to hold his own. He was always, you know what? He never gave a shit about like cultural trends. He always just had his opinions and had his morals and stuck by it. You know what I mean? He was never one to be swayed by 
what's cool or what isn't, whereas me and his brothers more were. He was always somehow, even though he's the youngest, he was just like not easily led. He had his own moral compass and he had his own vibe, you know, and he did his own thing. Unbelievably funny. Like I had to, I edited this like video for his funeral this week, which has been just one of the brutalest things I've ever had to do. But for his brother, his brother asked me and I said, of course, editing this video of like pictures and, you know, a memorial thing. And he's a big Liverpool fan and, we had the original, um, you know, You'll Never Walk Alone song. And like, you know, I was bawling, man, like editing it. I've not cried, for, you know, for a long time. And I was like watching it, like made me cry and stuff. And I realized it wasn't just, it was just so sad at like, what a unique guy is just gone. And like, what a unique life. And just like, uh, not that anyone's life is more worth anyone's than anyone else's. But it just made me realize like, actually, he'd had like impact on my life more than I'd ever realized. And yeah, he was just like, just full of life, but also full of darkness. And, you know, and he never hurt a fly. He'd never hurt anyone in his life. And I feel like sometimes it's the most nicest, sensitive people that aren't able to defeat those demons, you know, unfortunately. And I just wish we could have done more, man. Like, I really do. But I don't know. I don't know if you could, you know, sometimes it's the, the only solace is at least he's a, he's peaceful now. I'm not religious. I don't believe in any religion, but I'm not an atheist either. Like, and I do think there's, you can't kill energy. And he had a lot of energy wherever it is. It's somewhere. Maybe it's in all of us, you know, but it's somewhere. And it's just, it's just, ah, man, he was like fucking 24, man. It's just mad. When someone takes their own life, it doesn't just affect them, like you say, but a whole community and someone like your friend Archie, who is clearly so loved and beloved by everyone. For those people, that person's loss can maybe cause them to lose a part of themselves too. Is that a perspective you share? And how do you think we break down the stigma around when someone takes their own life in a community? Is it important to be honest and say they've actually done it? Yeah, well, I, I was this I was wondering because I, you know, I didn't say anything. I just waited to see the responses from his brother, from his family, you know, and I said, you know, I dedicated the latest documentary to him and said can I say this online and they said yeah yeah you know you have to I think you have to be careful don't just think like you know my immediate reaction is like oh my god my friends killed myself it's like well their brother has killed themselves their son has killed themselves you know that's way more important and you know you have to be sensitive to the family and whatever but certainly you know they were very like yeah we have to like use this as I don't know that, you know, it's, it's, I, I think you have to talk about it, you know, and I really do think so because you don't know who else might be struggling. And when you say like, oh man, like, you know, so-and-so killed themselves, you know, I had a few friends that don't know him or whatever. And I've been like, oh, I know a friend that killed themselves. And I don't know, it's, it's easier to help you cope because you don't want it to happen to you or someone else or whatever. Not that I've ever, I've never felt like that personally. I mean, what I mean is you don't want to be in a situation where you don't know how to talk to someone about it or you don't recognize the signs or, you know what I mean? So I think it's good to talk because you can share advice and, and stuff like that. And it's good to do stuff like this, you know. I, I'm usually very against talking about personal stuff, which, you know, people might say, what? But if you actually listen, I, I mainly just talk about work, you know what I mean? But I do think it's important if you have a little bit of a platform that you should kind of address it. And it should feel normal that people can say, hey, I have these feelings. I need some help rather than just be like a lot of people do think like, whoa, that's crazy. He did what? And it's like, no, like it's not crazy. It's it's normal. It's unfortunately normal to feel that depressed and that miserable. And what we have to do is make it normal to talk about and make you know lads realize that they especially young men it is very hard for young men to show their their emotions unfortunately and i think it should be normalized so that we can talk about it a bit more not that i want to you know not that i'm saying like everyone should 
feel they have to, but if you want to, you should be able to. Given how eloquently you've spoken about Archie and the memories you've shared together in his family, if he was listening to this pod, mate, and I'm sure he is somewhere, what do you think you would say to him and what do you think he would say to you? Boy, I don't even know, man. I just miss laughing with him, man. And like, we had a dark sense of humour, you know, like we both had a dark sense of humour together. And I just, I don't know, man. I just, I wish I'd maybe done more, you know. But again, I, I don't know what he would say. Maybe he, I think, I don't know, man. You know, we tried a lot. You know, his brother did everything for him, like literally everything. And it was just so, I don't know, man. It's just, it's just so hard to really to be there for someone when they just have lost faith a little bit, you know, in, in themselves. And I guess I would tell him that like, you know, what we always told him though, like we told him to his face is I told him, man, like you're a funny guy. You're a good looking boy. Like you've traveled, he traveled the world with his brother, like him and his brother, like went with no money to like the far East and like lived in mountains and like lived in slums. Like when we were like, I was making the video, there's all these videos of him, like, riding motorbikes through mountains and like living with like aborigine families in australia and it's just amazing he had amazing life man and he saw some of the best things ever and i saw and we saw some of the best things in him and i I, you know i wish i was more like him and i just wish he could have seen that in himself you know it's it's unfortunate it's very sad but unfortunately it just he couldn't see it himself that was the issue you know grief is discussed a lot on this pod mate and one thing that does come up is that grief actually is at times more stigmatised in many ways than mental health. Is that something you'd agree with? And if so, why do you think that is? Yeah, I would actually. And I found it weird. I found it weird in my work as well. You know, like I'd meet people that I'd work with and we've shared a connection and then they've been killed. Like loads of people I've worked with have been killed, you know, like obviously because I'm, you know, I'm filmed with militants and rebel groups. All the people we interviewed, you know, the PKK youth, for example, that I was talking about, all of the kids that we... You know, I sat down with, ate with them, came under fire with them. When you're involved in something so intense, you share a bit of yourself with each other, even if you don't know each other, you know? So when they were killed, I was like, oh, man, like, rest in peace, man. That's fucked. Like, it's sad. They're dead. I remember other war reporters that for some reason seemed to think that, like, acting like a psychopath was a virtue. They'd be like, why do you care, man? Like, oh, fucking grow up. Oh, and I was like, oh, should you like not care then that like someone you've shared even a bit of time with, you should care that they're dead. And I certainly, I'm not saying like, oh, rest in peace to be like, hey, I knew them. Like, no, it's just to recognize they're dead now. Like we shared a time together and I don't know, I think stuff like that is important. Maybe it's not, but to me it is. You know, any connection that is like interesting like that is important, you know, and if someone then passes, especially when they're killed violently, which they all were, What's wrong with being like, yeah, man, rest in peace. That's fucked. I recognize they died for what they believed in or whatever, but it's still sad. You know, and I meet certain reporters that would just be like acting like, oh, you shouldn't give a shit sort of thing. And for a while, I was like, oh, right, should you just keep quiet there? And then I realized, you know, I got I got older and whatever more experience. I was like, fuck them, man. <laughs> you can act like a psycho if you want. No, I'm not, man. And I certainly feel for a lot of those young men that died fighting for what they believed in. Even if I don't, necessarily agree 100% that they should have been fighting or what they were fighting for you know they did (laughs) you know and you can't just disregard their life like that so easily you know so I wouldn't say I had grief for them but I certainly felt bad you know and then the other thing is I mean I don't know how to express how I feel about my friend it's just sadness but it's I don't know in my head it's like, I don't want to be going on about it I don't want to overburden anyone with it I don't want to like and then I feel like well obviously my friend his brother is, is hurting way more than I am like I cannot imagine 
the grief those two boys are feeling in the family. Like, I have no idea. I can't even begin to imagine. So then you think like, well, shit, man, why am I all sad about it? Like, I shouldn't be so sad because there it's worse. But not really, like, you know, you all have, you know, he touched everyone in different ways and it's like, you all have your way of accepting and dealing with it. And actually, when I've spoken to his brother, like a very, very good friend of mine, it helps to talk to each other. Like, I feel sad about this. And, oh, remember when we did this together and all three of us were doing this and just laughing at him, man. Like, I remember there was one time we was up all night chatting and he was, like, losing money on some, like, bullshit online casino. And he just was making jokes about losing money, you know. And he didn't have any money anyway. You know, and I was like, what are you doing, man? Stop. And he's like, oh, boy, I can't wait to lose on this one. Like, and it was just, he was so funny, you know. I don't know. There's something, he could make things that weren't funny, funny. Brother sent me a video where he's riding this motorbike on like, I think it's like a private beach or something. I don't know. But it's just funny that he's riding a motorbike on a beach. I, I, you know, it's kind of like, fuck private beaches. Why should there be private beaches? You know, like, it's just, he was just funny, man, for no reason. Like, he was a funny guy. So it's good to talk about grief to remember them times together. Because otherwise, you just, you know, through the sadness of grief, you remember the good things is what I'm saying, you know. Or at least that's what I've experienced, you know. I mean, I've never had someone this close do such a thing. So I don't know. Yeah, man, it's mad. It's a weird feeling, man, and it's horrible. But I feel so bad for his brothers and his family. But like you said, man, I don't know. The energy is there, and I don't know. It's there somewhere, man. <laughs> I have a feeling. Our final topic of conversation, Jake, and it's one I try and have with all my special guests, which is a general natter about our mental health. So firstly... And you can include circumstances or exclude them if you want, because we're kind of at the end of a second lockdown. But some people are in tier three, some people are in tier two, some very lucky people are in tier one. But how would you say your mental health is at the moment, mate? I'd say it's all right. It's okay. I'm a bit stressed, a bit stressed with work. COVID is doing my head in. It's the way the government is dealing with it is one of the biggest factors for me when it comes to being stressed out about it, because it's just like, what the fuck is going on? Like, you know, it's like you've got to be joking me. When you feel like the government is just, I mean, you know, I, I, it's just insane. <laughs> like, I don't think even, I know even Tories that voted for him that are like, what the fuck is he doing? It makes no sense. A lot of the rules seem completely arbitrary. I don't think we did enough early enough. You know, the whole, oh, we love the NHS thing. You almost know that give it a year post COVID and it's going to, you know, my sister works for NHS and she was saying to me like, this is all well and good, but they don't actually give a shit about us. She's like, clapping is fine, that's nice, but the government needs to do more. It shouldn't be charities giving them the money. It shouldn't be the government encouraging people to clap. How about the government encourages a budget increase? <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, uh, I don't know. So that stresses me out. When I look at the state of like the way I think the world is kind of heading into right now, I think there's a big authoritarian streak just growing throughout the whole world and i think there's definitely a kind of paradigm shift happening on some level that stresses me out and it makes me worry because i feel like the world is getting smaller for me as a journalist you know i've been at the raw end of that i've experienced prison because of my work and being you know locked away because of a authoritarian regime so when i think that's happening more it gets me down and it's just like oh man there's certain places that I just think I can't go there. I couldn't go there anymore because just in case, you know, just in case it's not worth it. You know, trust me, it's not worth going to jail in Turkey. So yeah, man, I guess stressed, I would say, but at the same time, popular front is moving forward. I've got good people around me. 
My family's all healthy. I'm healthy. Can't really complain, even though I have been <laughs> for an hour. <laughs> what age do you think you were, mate, when you first realised that these feelings or mental health experiences you were going through weren't physical and they were actually in your mind? Can you pinpoint a time or were you not self-aware of it? I think all my life, to be honest, I've always been, you know, like butterflies. That for me is the worst feeling on the planet. Like that and just fear and sh- not fear, like anticipation of fear when you don't quite know is it going to happen is not going to happen that is just awful that's why prison was so bad for me because it wasn't like you're getting out in a week it was like we don't know when you're getting out so the days don't count down they count fucking up you know what i'm saying so that when you don't know what's going on you might not get out for 20 years you might get out in a week you might get out in a day we didn't know we were getting out until the day we got deported really so you know even when they released us from prison we were put in another prison, a deportation prison. So it was like, what the fuck's going on here? So that feeling has always been with me, like, you know, anxiety, like butterflies. I've always hated that feeling, man. So probably my whole life, to be honest, man, only as I got into my like 20s and like 30s, did I really feel the weight of like, in my 20s, it was depression. In my 30s, it was like emotional connections that I'd lost with people that really started to hurt. Like I'm talking like, love that you've had that is now gone is just like or at least not gone for me but whatever like stuff like that you know when i was in my 20s i was fucking wild i didn't care i was like whatever 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 now it's like oh my god like i would be so much happier if i hadn't have let that happen like you know it's not just like oh we move on it's like no i've detrimented my life for that decision i made five years ago or two years ago or whatever you suddenly start to realize you know what i'm saying so only that really hit him into my 20s and into my 30 like i'm 30 now and like hitting 30 was mad for me everything just hit me like i got more empathetic i think i got more literally overnight it was so weird i don't know what it was about turning 30 i was like oh my god like everything's terrible what have i done like i mean never anything that bad but just you know taking advantage of people that you love is never a good idea tell me a bit about the first conversation you ever had with someone about your mental health you know who was it with what impact did it have And how do you look back on it? Did it feel like a big moment or something quite insignificant and normalized? Looking back, it's kind of, it's significant in a big way, but not because of the way it was normalized. So like my granddad, I was about, you know, I was about to think, when would I first ever see a therapist? But then I thought, no, like my granddad, even as a young child, like he knew that, you know, things weren't great at home. He, you know, knew the issues, my dad and my mom, whatever. And even as a very young kid, he would kind of take me aside and be like, hey, if you ever want to talk, like what's happening, we'll talk. Like you're okay. Do you want to talk to me? Like from a guy that, you know, is a very, you know, strong man and like provides for his family and blah, blah, but also has the strong emotional side of him where he knows that you have to support people in more than a certain way was just so helpful for me to see that from my granddad and be like, this is a guy that to me is like infallible. And he's just like, hey, like if there's a problem, we can talk. You know, there's no shame in it. If you want to cry, you can cry. You know what I mean? Like that is so important. It's unusual from like, you know, an old school Irish man that like grew up in, I mean, what, he was born in the late 40s. You know what I mean? It's like, it's unusual, I think, especially he come from a very poor background. He was just that guy, he had it in him, you know, he knew that like, you have to be there for your people, you know? So that was throughout my whole life. And my granddad was always, you know, I was going through some shit recently and he rang me up and was just like, he wasn't like, are you okay? He just kind of told me, like, whatever happens, happens. You're going to be good. We're going to be here. You've done this. You've done that. You know, like a very straightforward man to man, but without it being like, not like, oh, pull your socks up. Not even just like, you're going to be okay. You know, and sometimes you need that. And then my grandma, she's been there for me in the way that grandmas are. Like, 
I think you always need, most people disagree with me when I say this, but I think you always need someone in your life that no matter what, they're on your side. You know, like I could burn down a school and my grandma would be like, well, the school shouldn't have existed in his way. You know what I mean? The match shouldn't have been near him. It's not his fault. You know what I mean? And like my grandma is that for me. You know, she'll always be on my side. My granddad, I turn up and I've done something wrong. Sit the fuck down. We're going over it. You know, that's another thing I like about them. They're very direct. If I'm in trouble, you know, I mean, I'm, t- I'm 30 years old. I'm talking like a child, but, you know, like as a kid growing up, if I was in trouble, I know that it's getting dealt with there and then. And we're going to talk about it and we're going to deal with it. There's no cold silence. You know, there's this is what you've done wrong and you need to deal with it and own up to it and deal with it like you have to. You know, if you fuck up, you have to suffer the consequences. So I've always appreciated that because it never made me anxious dealing with my grandparents. You know, it's always like, only if I ever felt like I could upset my grandma, you know, I don't want to upset my grandma, <laughs> you know, like even as an adult, like I really don't. But yeah, so I guess my whole life, luckily, thanks to these two people, there's always been a, you know, a little support, even if we don't call it like, oh, how's your mental health? There's always been checking in and making sure it's all good. And certainly with my family or anyone around me now, it's always, I've always felt very comfortable saying to my friend, like, hey, man, if you need anything, anytime, let me know. You know, and I mean it as well. Like anytime, let me know. Like we'll do it because the value of having that when other people don't have it is, is you, you can't you can't value it. It's, it's it's just unbelievable. You know what I mean? What things do you find in life that trigger your mental health? So this could be things people might say to you, sounds, sensations, social environments, or have you not figured all of them out yet? Yeah, I don't really know, mate. I mean, certainly when I came out of prison, there was like a, the weirdest thing I ever felt was like a trigger for. I mean, maybe I got some PTSD in there. I think. But like, you know, there's a weird thing where we would have to like wash our shirts in this like dirty basin because, you know, we weren't allowed to shower or anything. We'd shit in a hole and whatever. So we were like covered in filth. So we'd wash our shirts best we could in this like little sink. And to get them dry, we'd like hold them up and kind of flap them, you know, to like, boom, like fling the water out of it sort of thing. I don't know why I had to do it. I think my shirt wasn't dried and I was like, oh, I'll just do this quickly. Back home, like about a week after jail. And as soon as I did it, like, I went cold, man. Like, all the hairs on the back of my neck stood up. I've never felt that much of a physical reaction to, like, anything mental like that. It was, like, visceral. I could feel it. I felt almost like I was back in prison for a second, you know? It was really weird. And then for a long time, like, if anyone, even now, actually, to a degree, if I hear the door, someone tries to put a letter through or the door opens, I'm fucking, like panicked when i wake up immediately and i think that's because when we was in prison you know we get woken up every morning by the jailer like opens the door and flings something to you or whatever or tells you to get up so i think like that you know part of it makes me think oh i'm still in prison for a split second and it just makes you fearful other than that like there's certain images like photos of people that you know i don't have around me anymore that just i can't like i have them in my phone and i'll be scrolling and i'll see this person and just be like fuck like get passed out or a song like there's certain songs on my spotify just as soon as it comes on like i'll pull out my earphones or like quickly skip it you know because it's just like it hurts too much man you know like heartbreak and shit all that kind of shit that shit is wild for a man because we do find that hard to deal with i think and i never understood it until like last couple years and i think that's hard to deal with so my way of dealing with it is probably not the best way but probably just delete that shit but at the same time it's like sometimes you don't want to you know you want to just look sometimes so it's a funny thing, man. You know, life is a funny old thing, but I don't know. Not much really gets me going, to be honest. Like, it's not that bad. There is certain elements of whenever I hear about someone in prison, 
you know, incarcerated wrongly. There's a lot of journalists in jail right now. That really makes me physically angry, like furious, because I know what it feels like to have your freedom taken away. Honestly, in jail there, it was like having your human rights, feeling them drain from your body. Like you just became this plaything. You didn't have your rights anymore. And that is, you know, I'm a big, big advocate for a complete freedom and equality. And when you feel that vanish, now when I see it happening to other people, it makes me incredibly passionate and incredibly furious that that's happening to them, that other people are deciding to take their freedom based on some arbitrary bullshit, like, oh, they're not saying what we want them to say or their political group, oh, they shouldn't be rising up or, you know what I mean? Just nonsense. Like, obviously, if someone's with a garden and they're fighting you, obviously they're going to go to prison. I'm talking about people that even speak about it, get jailed, you know? Like, oh, if even they even say, oh, I think it's good that they're rising up, I understand. And they get put in prison. It's like, what? There's your rights are gone. So, yeah, that stuff makes me angry. But in a in a um, productive way, not in a, like, violent way, like, obviously, just, like, in a way of, like, right, Let's find out. Read this. Let me put something out. Let me try and use my platform to help. Who can I talk to? Because I know people rallied behind me. People really did a lot for me when I was in there. And I just want to repay the favour. What tools and methods do you use in your own life to improve your mental health, mate, or help you feel better? Which ones have you found that have worked? And maybe which ones that you've tried but haven't? The gym is definitely a big one for me. I mean, I'm not in particularly good shape, but, you know, I'm not trying to be like a fucking bodybuilder or anything like that. But it's doing like the gym and like combat sports like Muay Thai, boxing. That has always been a good one for me. And it's not just the stress relief, but it's turning off your brain for a bit and just getting involved in something that doesn't it's just out yeah right it's out your body like it's not out your body but you know what I mean it's just like right this doesn't take a lot of thinking it just has to be done and also then you end up not the gym but the like Muay Thai like and boxing you end up with a community like all my friends that I've known for years like my closest friends from back in them days was from the gym you know and they're still there and you, you just create this bond with each other and you're there for each other and and you can don't know there's something about being able to spar with each other without hating each other and not without wanting to actually hurt each other that's really makes you close to your friends you know you I didn't realize it when I was younger but I realize it now you become close in a different way I, I don't know how to explain it it's just a thing of like maybe a more mutual respect because you know you're not you can hurt each other and you know you're not going to you're just trying to help each other get good at you know whatever you're training at and also being close being able to touch your friends which sounds really weird but as a man being able to touch your friends and not feel weird about it like hug your mate grab your mate Boxing and that actually helps with that. You know, like I see my pals at the gym, they're always grabbing each other and fucking around with each other and squeezing each other's head or like, you know, just being weirdos. And I love seeing that. I love when I see them doing that together because I don't have that with a lot of people, you know what I'm saying? And it's like, there's something about men being able to do that comfortably without any stupidness that is very important for your brain and closeness and warmth. Things that haven't worked. Therapy never worked that well for me. I did like CBT. I was told that that was going to be like revolutionary. I remember at the end of it, I was like, what the fuck? Like, I've just been talking to some guy for like 12 weeks. Like, And also, I think for me, I'm very aware when they're like, right, you're nearly done now. And it's just like, this is a transaction. And I didn't, I understand, like, I have no disrespect to therapists. I think it's great if it works for them. But for me, they, I'm just such an asshole that like that, feeling of this is a transaction and I'm paying for this and as soon as you're ready to go you just you want to cut out for me just never it never really I couldn't really chill with that it just I was just thinking, oh fuck for then you're listening and all of a sudden it's like right see you later bye that for me always felt weird it just felt it overshadowed anything else I could get from it toxic masculinity is a big topic on this podcast Jake as you can imagine and when I was growing up it always centered around hyper masculine aggression it centered around ingrained homophobia 
or making any man feel like anything out of the ordinary was was homosexual, basically, and therefore something of stigma. The point that I really enjoyed you talking about there was, was around Muay Thai and boxing, where it is a form of aggression, but it's mutual respect. It's enables you to show emotion with each other. Is that something that you value quite highly? And then also, what would you define as toxic masculinity? Hopefully, it's in a minority in a few more years. Can I answer the last question first? And that would make more sense. So just, just to answer first, what is toxic masculinity? I think that's a very tricky question. And, you know, I come from it from a different point of view to a lot of people. I think that the term has been used too much. But then also, how do I say this? There's nothing wrong with masculinity. But yeah, toxic masculinity is, I think it is overused. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. That's what I was going to say, right? So yeah, so toxic masculinity is overused. And I don't think there's anything wrong with masculinity. I've seen it. I've seen it in family issues. I've seen it wherever. There is certain things that you need to be a man about it. And that doesn't mean that saying like, oh, you need to be a man about it, for me, comes from a different point of view. That doesn't mean like be violent or be aggressive or disregard everyone. No, actually, that for me is like be reliable, be a good person, be there for the people that need you. That is manly. That is masculine. And, you know, sometimes you might want to fold and break down, but this is controversial, but sometimes you actually need to not do that because you need to be strong for other people. There is more than you, you know, and and sometimes it's fine if you can't be that person, but if you can be that person that other people get strength through, you should appreciate that and, and get happiness from that and act accordingly. Now, that doesn't mean don't talk, don't break down, but there are, there are certain things that I think being a, a strong man or a strong woman as well. This isn't like a sexy thing. I'm very much in favor of equality. But there is a lot in the man side of things where people don't talk about enough. And you do get this stupidness where like, you know, you see women will say like, oh, men are trash. And it's like, do you know how fucking unhelpful that is to say that? It's funny. I was talking to one of the female fighters in uh, in Syria, in Kurdistan about this. And they have their own version of um, feminism and there's women fighters and men fighters and they fight together and whatever. It's a very equal society. And they were laughing. They were just like, this is such a disgusting term. Like, she's like, we love our men. They fought for us and died for us. We fight for them and we die for them. It's not about men are trash. It's not about degrading them. It's trying to make them realize that they're on, we, we all need to be in the same boat. And she was saying that like, you know, I, I don't know if I agree or disagree. I don't know. But she was like, men are some of the biggest victims of the sexism because they end up thinking that they're above a woman and that they don't need them. And then we don't get what we need from each other. Men need women and women need men. There is no, for me, there is no like, one or the other you know there should be no patriarchy and there should be no matriarchy it should be equal we need each other man like we really need each other there is point of views from my female friends that i will never get from my male friends there are things my male friends can do for me that my female friends can never do for me it's yin and yang it sounds corny but it is man and i think when people accept that that's when it's better luckily within my friends group there is none of that like hyper woke men are trash men are dirt shit and there is none of the hyper toxic or bitch this and you know that kind of talk there is like just a lot of understanding actually and a lot of like men and women talk to each other we go out we hang out with women we hang out with men the same way so for me i've been lucky but again i grew up with women you know what i mean so i grew up with my sisters my mom my grandma is very close to me so for me it's i've never really seen women as like I didn't look, I didn't have that toxic masculinity in the household as such, you know what I mean? And certainly I'm lucky to come from like a family that are like not prejudiced at all, you know, like as in fact in my, my extended family, it's all mixed races and everything. So, you know, it, it's, I'm lucky to come from that background, so I can't comment on it so much. I do remember in school where like everything's gay, oh, that's gay, this is gay. There is two levels to it though, like that's a stupid thing to say, but also 
doesn't always mean what it sounds like it means. You know what I'm saying? Like, you can't, like, cancel a nine-year-old child and, like, drag him across the coals for saying that's gay. Because he probably doesn't mean anything against gay people. What you have to do is educate him and say, hey, don't say that. Don't say it in this setting. Don't say it in this context. Use another word. Just say shit. You know what I mean? Like, you, you know what I mean? There's no point scolding this kid. And, you know, this cancel culture for me is bullshit. Like, it's gone way too far. And it's just destroyed lives. And it's not helping at all. Like, I, I'm against it. I don't believe in no platforming either. I think that the only way to progress is to talk about it and weed out the fuckers. Like, the bad ones, the real ones, the racists, the homophobes. Like, weed them out and exclude them. If they can't be helped or can't be bring around, exclude them. And... Do what you can to make sure they don't hurt anyone that you love or anyone in, or even anyone, actually. It shouldn't be people you know. You know, you should definitely, someone white, you should be able, you should be willing to defend anyone that a racist, for example, would go after any time, in my opinion. You know, I think you owe that to people. So don't get me wrong, I'm not coming at this from some right-wing perspective, but I do think just in the sense of like trying to <laughs> make things a bit better, we need to scrap this men of trash shit and we need to scrap this cancel culture stuff. But then also we need to talk more openly and more often about the real toxic masculinity, men beating women. One thing I think I just want to point out that I think is missed often is some of the biggest people that are talking about like toxic masculinity are kind of like also allowing it to kind of thrive in certain areas. So for example, I won't say who, but there was a, <laughs> there was a big media company that I used to work for that was saying how like it's vice fuck it what do I care <laughs> like it was vice they were saying like I was thinking what do I care they were saying that this big segment on how like Dave Chappelle's new comedy was disgusting and he should be cancelled and like I thought it was brilliant I thought it was very funny I love Dave Chappelle I'm unapologetic about that but then at the same time they had like you know a series where Danny Brown that rapper he was the host of the series now you know, I listen to Danny Brown and then he's all right. But his lyrics about fuck this bitch, fuck that bitch. I'll slap this bitch in the face. You know, like that's really toxic. And it's like, I'm not saying that like we should censor music. Absolutely not. I'll listen to whatever I want, you know, because I'm not going to go and do it. But I do think if you're going to take a moral standpoint, you kind of have to be level with it on every level. You can't go, Dave Chappelle's bad, but we're going to employ this guy. Like, well, what is it? Is it okay or is it not okay? So, I, I, look, I just think there needs to be an even playing field because otherwise it's too easy to disregard. Because for me, it's very, when Vice says something, I'm like, shut the fuck up. So, you know, you have to be consistent, I think. But I think it's upon men as well. Men need to do more to talk to their female friends openly. Like, I know men that can't have female friends. Like, they just want to fuck. They're like, how can you be friends with this girl? I'm like, what is wrong with you? Like, just be fucking friends. Like, the perspectives you can get if you just try and be their fucking friend. Like, you know what I mean? Like, it's weird, man. I, I've noticed, actually, a lot of men that have not grown up with sisters are sometimes like that. And it's no detriment to them. I think we just, as men, have to teach them as well. And be like, hey, chill out, chill out. Don't encourage the behavior of like, yeah, yeah. You should be like, nah, man, that's like a girl in our friend group. Like, that would be weird. Can you not? So, I don't know. It's on all of us, but it's on women and men to just communicate better. And I think that the angry nature of hate towards men, I understand it. Trust me, I understand it. But unfortunately, it's not going to change the people that are already fucked up from it, the toxic masculinity, they're already bastards. And the last thing I will say is I believe that all women should engage in some kind of self-defense and be able to defend themselves because unfortunately the bad men are never going to change. That's going to be there forever.
like you said, I think in education and engagement is the key here. And nipping toxic masculinity in the bud, I think, comes from school because that's where, let's face it, majority of it comes from in beds and then never gets challenged. And like you said, you can't cancel someone for saying something homophobic as a nine-year-old because a lot of the time they don't know what we're saying. We probably all said something like that when we were 10, 9, 13, whatever, and then felt horrible afterwards. But it's about challenging it and nipping it in the bud when it comes up and when it arises. Just as a final question, mate, and this has been an amazing pod, and I really appreciate you taking so much time to speak to me. What more do we have to do to ensure men from all backgrounds feel comfortable and safe in opening up about their mental health issues or their mental health if they want to? Uh, I think we need to make it, you know, like Movember and male health, health and whatever mental health awareness month whatever that's all well and good I'm, I'm nothing against all of it i think it's great but i think we need to make it more consistent it shouldn't be like a moment in the year where we pay attention to it you know like it should be everywhere because it's not like one month of the year every man gets depressed it's constant it's everywhere and we're, we're bad at dealing with it by and large i mean women are so i think are more stronger dealing with this stuff just from a personal thing i've noticed and i think we need to get you know what we think is weak is actually strong like dealing with it and talking to your your friends and being more open is actually strength that's not weakness it's the opposite it's strength you know like you have to see it from the way that that is like talking about it and being open and close man the, the, if you can't talk to your friends about that stuff you're not really that close the new level of friendship you can get from opening up and feeling comfortable enough to talk to your friends and say hey i'm depressed man i want to talk to you is unbelievable and if they don't if they don't want to talk you know either they're a bad friend or they don't know how to deal with it so we need to all be in a place where i think we're talking about it more often in a way so that we can all deal with it but also i do think there's we need to put a bit more of a focus on men being men in a good way being a strong man like i said before should not be a negative thing now toxic masculinity and just scumbag men have made it that way but, you know, I don't, I think we need to put a new emphasis on it because a lot of lads do want to be strong men. They do want to be strong and you have to really recalibrate. I mean, all men do, actually. I think most men like have a feeling in them where it's testosterone, it's ego, whatever. Like, I don't think you have to say we need to get rid of all that. I think you have to say recalibrate the path they're aiming for. What strong means? What strong means? Yeah, don't just be like, no, that's toxic. Fuck off. Shut up. Don't be like, oh, what, you do combat sports? Oh, you must be aggressive. Actually, it takes recalibration for the men and it takes understanding from different backgrounds. Now, a lot of, you know, more wealthy or middle class people might see like Muay Thai and MMA and boxing or gym even. They might see it as some kind of like animalistic thing. And it's like, well, no, actually, you now need to learn our community as well. You need to understand that for us, it's a huge release. If you're good, it's a fucking art form. I've always said that about boxing. Not MMA, I think that's gross. <laughs> I find it too animalistic, but that's my opinion. But even in MMA, it sure can be. But like, you know what I mean? It's like, you have to understand where we're coming from as well. You can't. So those, what I find a problem with is, yeah, mental health professionals are from a certain demographic and are in a certain demographic and they decide what is helping you. Sometimes you have to say, no, 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 you have to come down to our level and see what is helping us and use that in what you're doing. Not just tell us it's wrong or that it's toxic or that it's not enough understand where it can help us so yeah that's what i would say man i guess ultimately just people should be able to talk to each other and i think as men we need to realize that being strong doesn't mean being aggressive it doesn't mean being horrible to women and it certainly doesn't mean being violent you know and it definitely doesn't mean being homophobic i've got a gay cousin that will 
kicking anyone's head. You know what I'm saying? Like this whole idea of like, oh, gay is weak is just, I mean, it's pathetic. To be honest, I've seen a lot of that is vanishing. Like each generation, it fades away a little bit more. It's like grow up, you know? And I think that is another thing. We need to tell men grow up, but not in the sense of, oh, grow up, you're a child. It's just like that behavior is not manly. That behavior is childish. To be manly is to be accepting, is to understand. That's what I think anyway. How would you want to be for your kids and how do you want your kids to see you? That's what you should think. Well, I think that's all we've got time for on this episode of the Just Checking In podcast. I want to say a massive, massive thank you to Jake for being my special guest on this episode's pod, for letting me check in with him and being so open and honest about his journey and experiences. I'm going to put some links to where you can watch Jake's films, subscribe to Q Clearance and Popular Front, sign up to their Patreon and follow him on social media in the show notes. Remember, as always, if you've liked what you've heard, please give this a share on all the usual social media channels. Tell your friends or work colleagues about it. Or if you're feeling generous, write us a review on Apple Podcasts or sign up to our Patreon as well. We hope to check in with you again very soon. And remember, it's always okay to vent. (laughs) 